Doing pretty good? Excellent, excellent. It is good to see you guys. We want to uh, start this time off uh, this, this season um, um, with a message about prophecy and, and God's uh, use of prophecy to point towards the arrival of the Savior. Advent is a season, um, we mentioned it earlier, Advent in and of itself, the word means arrival. The word means arrival. And it is highlighting the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world. But it's not just highlighting the arrival of Jesus into the world, it's highlighting the, the coming arrival of Jesus back into the world. And so it is a time in which, um, it is a time that is marked by patience. It's a time that's marked by waiting. Um, it's, it's, it's waiting, it's, 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 it's the time period between, or the time period before Christ came where people uh, eagerly awaited his arrival. They awaited, with, they awaited with, with, with the prophetic word that was being proclaimed and professed thousands of years in advance. And, and then, but they also, as, as the time grew closer, they awaited with joy. Shepherds, they awaited eagerly with joy as they heard about this coming Savior and they began to make their journey to see him. The wise men, the same. And they also, it's marked by awaiting with in this mindset of peace and love because, because that's what the Savior has come to bring. And so he has brought love, he is, or through love, he has brought peace to us. And so, and so for, for this season, we're going to spend a lot of time focused on the ideal of waiting, but focused on the ideal of waiting in, in, in particular particular perspectives or particular facets of waiting. So waiting, like I said, as we look through his prophetic word and, and, and waiting with joy and anticipation, waiting with preparation even, because waiting is not just a passive, waiting is not a passive term, especially as Christians wait. Waiting is an active term. We wait, and as we wait, we prepare. Does that make sense? So, and so this is what the season is built on, which is kind of odd, right? Because the last thing we've learned how to do in the Christmas season is wait. Right? Nobody's teaching you to wait during the Christmas season. Does that make sense? I mean, li literally, literally, as soon as the season starts... Which is like the the the, the morning up of or, or the morning the Friday morning after Thanksgiving, but it's gotten to the point where they don't even allow you to wait for that, right? It's like you better get there Thursday. Somebody put that uh, that turkey. I mean, I, I, we don't eat that much turkey, so I, I was about to say chicken. But somebody better put that turkey in the Ziploc bag or something because we gotta get to the we gotta get to the store, right? Because all the gifts are gonna be gone. And, and, and waiting is just not a part of your reality anymore. When you live in this hustle-bustle, consumeristic society, waiting is seen almost as, as, an, as an adverse trait to carry, a negative trait to carry, a negative quality to possess. But waiting is very much a part of Christianity. And so I want to spend a little time just focused in on this text. I, I want to make a few observations before I really kind of just deal with the text. And, and that is this. Let, let's, let's think for a second on the reality that this was a text that was prepared to speak about Christ 700 years before Christ showed up. 
700 years before he showed up on the scene, Isaiah was speaking of him. And there's some, there's some funny language that happens in Isaiah where, where it's almost like double language. He's speaking of someone that seems to fit the times and at the same time pointing to someone later down the road. And that later person that he's pointing to is Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in most of the New Testament, what you see in the Gospels is, is the, the Gospel writers pointing back to this prophet, Isaiah, and saying over and over and over again, Jesus fulfilled this, Jesus fulfilled this, that was spoken by the prophet. And so 700 years before he showed up on the scene, he was already seeing through the eyes of God what was to come in this Savior. Now, that means that there is a necessity for God's people to be patient, right? 700 years. As a matter of fact, the promise was first spoken of thousands of years. In fact, it really begins in Genesis 3. But then, of course, we find, we find it formalized as Genesis progresses. And so, it's, and so Abraham is given this covenant. He said, and, and, and God says, through, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that happens thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene. So there's a necessity for God's people to remain patient with God. But also there, there's the reality that for us, there's a necessity for God's people to trust him now, right? Because if, 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 it, if, if he was moving through thousands of years and still brought his promise to pass, what does that say for you and for me as we wait on God for five days to move? And we say, well, he must have forgotten about me. As people are looking around and saying, when is Jesus coming back? It's been 2,000 years since he left. Maybe, maybe he's not. Do you understand that it was thousands of years before he arrived the first time? And so the patience that was on display during that time is an is a example to us that we must remain patient in our trust towards God. Whether it be our trust as we await the promise of the Savior or the, the coming arrival of the Savior. Or even if it's just our trust in the day-to-day -day when it doesn't seem like God is moving fast enough. God is not on your clock. He's on his own. And praise God he is. Some of you guys are like, man, you know... You, 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 you can just think about the times that you want to rush God. How many times have you thought about rushing God and then you come back later on and realize, man, I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? He saved me from a whole lot of trouble. That's because he knows more. Yeah. So rest in his clock. But also the, the idea that, that it's 700 years is interesting, but also this idea that this 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 language of servant, he moves back and forth, and he says that 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 the servant sometimes in Isaiah is actually Israel, or or he refers to it as Jacob, the people of Israel. But then also, but but then the servant is an individual. So sometimes the servant is a nation, sometimes the servant is an individual, and I find that interesting. In verse, 40, for, uh, verse 8 of chapter 41, he says, But you, Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from his farthest, farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And he says that several times. He uses the language servant to point to Israel. 
But then he, then he ties servant for the first time to this individual that's to come. And the first time he makes that tie is in chapter 42. It's one of the four passages where we see that God is pointing to a single servant. And that single servant, unlike Israel, will bring salvation and rescue to the entire world. The servant Israel seems to be insufficient. The servant Israel is not even sufficient to save itself. One of the major issues, in fact, with Israel is oftentimes it runs to idols, right? And so in the very first, and, and before we get to chapter 42, in verses 40, uh, in, in chapter 41, verses 21 through 29, God highlights that. The fact that they continue to look to idols to receive their satisfaction. And he talks about the idols and he says, do the idols, can the idols proclaim your future? Or can they declare your future? Do, are the idols familiar with your past? Can they make sense of where you've been? He says in verse 25 of that chapter, I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name and he shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it for them from the beginning that we might know it beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. And then he says this, he says, behold in verse 29, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty. He's talking about idols. He says all of those idols are useless. They don't have a past to declare for you. They don't have a present or a future to declare for you. They're empty. They're foolish. But then he goes into this new servant in chapter 42. And he says the same thing. He says, behold. So behold the idols, right? Look at them. See them for who they are. And now, behold the one that I'm sending behind him. One who truly does carry power to save. One who truly does carry power to rescue. One who truly does declare or has the power to declare, make sense of your past and declare your future. He says in verse 1 of chapter 41, Behold my servant, now we see, this chosen Savior, this chosen servant in whom the Father Delights. Behold my Savior, my servant rather, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the one that Israel needs, not the idols in chapter 41. Not the one that they continue to run to. This is the one that will set things right. This is the one that's been chosen by God, the Father. This is the one whom the Father is pleased in, who will set everything that is wrong in the world in order. This is the one who will bring justice to the nations. This is the one who the Spirit or whom the Spirit rests upon. See, the writers of the gospel constantly draw this connection right here back to Jesus. When, John, when Jesus was baptized, for example, by John, we read in Matthew chapter 3, we read what? That the Spirit came down and rested upon him. You, you recognize that language in the verse that we just read? The Spirit came down, rested upon him. And then we hear in that same chapter, in Matthew chapter 3, we hear God say, God the Father say from the heavens, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you recognize that language in verse 1 of chapter 42? In whom my soul delights. 
The spirit comes to rest upon him, connects, the, connects us back to, I have put my spirit upon him in chapter 42. The God's voice saying, this is my beloved son, connects us back to, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. This is the one that was approved by God to bring salvation, God the Father, to bring salvation to the nations. The one Israel needed, but they had to patiently wait on for another seven centuries. It is not just the gospel that gospel authors that make this connection, but it's Jesus himself who makes this connection. In Luke chapter four, Jesus is in the, is, is in the place of worship. And when he is in the place of worship, the Bible says that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. When Jesus grabs that scroll, he unrolls that scroll. And he finds the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed in on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, the one that Isaiah was looking towards has arrived. And so the gospel authors believed that Jesus was the one. Jesus himself proclaimed that he was the one. But how shall this chosen one rule? This one that God the Father delights in. How shall he reign? Verse 2 and 3 gives us some hints. And look, look, at there, uh, look there with me. It says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Though Christ is the chosen one, he does not feel the need to shout it down on you in a threatening and lording sort of way, in an in a authoritarian sort of way. Are you tracking with that? His authority in the earth is absolute. Remember, he says when he resurrects from the grave that all authority is given to me. And yet he's never authoritarian in his operations. Does that make sense? He rules gently with us. Says a bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. What does that mean? Well, does anyone know what a reed is? Anybody? Okay. Got some, got, some, got some nods of heads. I used to think it was a stick. It's not a stick. It's not a stick. You can tell I haven't been in many marshy lands, marshy places before. But a reed is a, it's a blade of grass, that, that, that type of grass that grows in marshy places, wetlands. Think about that. Bruise, basically the ideal of it being snapped or harmed. You know, if, you're, if you're stepping through, you can understand how easy it is to damage the grass that that you would be treading upon in, in a marshy place. Have you ever seen a snap blade of grass? How did you treat it? Anybody remember? Probably not. You see a need to care for it? What about a wick, a candle wick that's almost burned to his last, to his last end? Almost out. If I see a need to be gentle with that, care with care for that. 
You see any need to preserve that wick? Isaiah declares that this is a ruler who has all power and yet deals most gently with the weakest amongst us, with the most vulnerable amongst us, with the ones that we can cast aside and throw away, and that many of us do cast aside and throw away, he deals gently with. It is for this reason that the Christian life is reserved for the people who acknowledge their brokenness, their weakness, their frailty. When David, the king of Israel, sinned greatly against God by sleeping with a married woman and having her husband murdered to cover it up, cover it up he cried out to God and confessed his sin in the form of a song, Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, David declares that you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, God is not looking for the kind of person who is looking for their strength to bring them back to him. The one who has it all together when he comes back and has all of his ducks in a row. He is looking for the vulnerable and the weak. An acknowledgement that we aren't as strong as he is. That's what he's looking for. An acknowledgement that without him we fail. But that through him we desire to be made whole. That's what he's looking for. It is the heart that God will not reject. The heart that comes in weakness, vulnerability. Open acknowledgement that without you, I am nothing. That is the heart that God embraces. That is the heart that God accepts. In other words, he doesn't extinguish a fading candle. And he doesn't, and he doesn't tear away a snap blade of grass. Does that make sense? Some of us are in need of hearing that this morning. Because the, world, the, world, the way the world works, you think that's the way that God works. So when you see yourself broken and weak, you say to yourself, well, the world doesn't want me, so certainly he doesn't. He's far more greater or far greater and far more powerful than they are. So certainly if they don't want me, he doesn't either. You may feel like you don't have what it takes to stand before the savior of the universe. And the truth is, if the savior of the universe ran his kingdom like the world runs its kingdom, you wouldn't. You would be absolutely right. But this king draws nigh to the broken. He doesn't despise them. This king, this king, instead of looking for the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, rather, for this king is, in fact, your brokenness that you bring to him. This is why that savior is worth waiting on. That's why this Savior is worth waiting on for thousands of years because there will never be another Savior or another King who governs kingdoms like this. Does that make sense? But it also bears worth mentioning that the early parts of this passage of Scripture, we read the word justice three different times. And we read, we've read it as, as, as Christ being the one who will bring it. But let me just say that I do, I do realize that the highest fulfillment of this is in the spiritual justice that Christ establishes by, by dying on the cross for sin and absorbing the wrath of God. 
But one thing that does cause me great concern is how often we hear Jesus speak to the plight of the, of the, of the vulnerable and the weak and the poor and how he declares that through his prophets and through his actions that he will he will care for the vulnerable he will care for the weak he will care for the poor he will bring justice to those who have been afflicted and yet when we look at the landscape of american christianity we see sometimes how unconcerned we tend to be towards those very people Micah 6 and 8 says do what the lord this is what the lord requires that you do justice love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Christ embodies this all throughout his ministry. In John chapter 4, he restores dignity to a sexually uh, promiscuous, socially and culturally out, uh, um, ostracized woman at a well. And she becomes a witness, to, uh, a witness to him as a result of his gentle handling of that bruised reed. Matthew 9, he welcomes the touch of an ill woman whose issue of bleeding has made her untouchable in society. Nobody wants to be around her. Nobody wants to touch her. And yet he welcomes the touch. And instead of rebuking her, he encourages her to take heart. For your faith has made you whole. He will not quench a fading candle. He will ignite that candle yet again. Over and over again, we see men and women of the weakest and most vulnerable variety being enlisted by the Savior for his service, treated with dignity and rescued from the plight for eternal purposes and towards an eternal end. And so as you labor to embrace a whole picture of Christ and a whole picture of God's saving work, you cannot disregard how you treat and handle the wounded and the vulnerable. You can't disregard it. You have to ask yourself, how does my treatment of such people represent the Savior who has rescued me? And more importantly, we should handle them as people who ourselves are wounded and as people who ourselves are weak and as people who ourselves are vulnerable and poor in spirit. Because of our sin debt, no matter what background we come from, no matter how much money we possess and have in our pockets, no matter the privilege that we have in our lifestyles, Christians should have the most grace and the most respect and be willing to hand out and affirm the most dignity to the weak. Are you tracking? Because we walk in step with the Savior. And that is the Savior's M.O. When you look at verse 4, it says he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. One reason is because that as we declared thousands of years, or that, or one reason is because it was declared thousands of years ago in prophecy that was actually fulfilled. A savior was born. And so we know that this kingdom will not stop. We know, we know because it was declared and it was fulfilled. We know that this kingdom will not stop, right? But another reason we know that this kingdom will not stop is because he himself will not grow weary. He himself will not grow faint. See, we live in the already but not yet, okay? In other words, what I mean is that his kingdom has arrived and yet we are still waiting on the full consummation. We are saved and yet we still shed tears in other words, right? We love him and yet we still wrestle with sin in our flesh. We, he, he raised from the grave with all power and authority under heaven and yet loved ones still get sick. 
people still die that we love and we and we and we miss. And so this tells us that something is still going on, but 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 understand this, understand this, that he will not stop until all of it is made right. He tracking with this. But not only will Jesus not stop until it's all made right, but look at verse 5 through 7. It says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Listen, God saying to the servant or God saying to the son, to the savior to come, I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so not only is Jesus committed to fulfilling and bringing to consummation this end, bringing it all, bringing it all together, but the father is committed to bringing it all together along with his son. He says, I will take you by the hand. He, he is talking to the son, declaring that he will literally take the son by the hand to ensure that it is accomplished. When Jesus was tempted in the, gar- in the wilderness, it says right after his temptation or right after, his, uh, right after he resisted his, his temptation, the Bible says the angels came and ministered to him. I will take you by the hand. That when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was, he was crying out and sweating drops of blood because of, of, of how heavy the weight of taking upon the sins of the world was. It was the Father's face that he looked to and he prayed. He said, Lord, if it be thy will, or Father, if it be thy will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I will take you by the hand. The Son and the Father are relentless in completing the mission of rescuing you from yourself and me from myself. Now notice the language in verse 6. It says that, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. This servant who we call Jesus is not simply declaring a new covenant. He is the covenant himself. God says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. Most covenants are only as good as the people keeping them, right? You tracking with that? You tracking with that? You know, you can, you can sometimes just watch two people make a covenant and just based on knowing those people, you probably say to yourself, I don't know, bro. <laughs> I don't know, man, you know. Maybe they, maybe they should talk this over a little bit more, right? <laughs> right? Because, because one, one, maybe one, maybe the other, you're kind of like, I don't know, man. That dude ain't never kept, kept a word in his entire life. Why is he going to keep one now? Right? You got some people that'll tell you, man, I promise you, I'll pay you back. And you'll be like, man, don't worry about it. You, you keep it. You know? Just keep it, bro. It's no big deal. No, seriously, it's no big deal. Just keep it. The covenant is only as good as the people keeping it. 
And so, and so here, in, what's interesting is that, is that God says, God the Father says that this covenant to bring this mission to a concluding, to a satisfactory conclusion, I'm going to ratify, I'm going to authorize, or I'm going to seal it with the covenant, not just of my son kind of writing on, signing on a sheet of paper. He will be himself the covenant. So by Christ becoming the covenant himself, it is an assurance that, that what God has sought to accomplish no longer rests in the hands of shaky people. Because if this covenant rests on me, I'm in trouble. Right? And don't just look at me like, yeah, if it rests on you. No, I'm talking about all of us. If this covenant rests on you, you're in trouble. This covenant has to rest somewhere beyond us. Because we, we just don't hold the line very long. We oscillate back and forth. We have highs and we have lows. On one day, we feel like sin can't do anything to us. And on the next day, we feel like sin, can't, the sin is doing everything to us. So it is Christ who becomes the covenant to ensure that it is fulfilled in its entirety. While on earth, nothing can stand in the way to oppose the mission that the Father has set aside for Christ because he set aside a mission to ransom a people for his eternal glory and his, and his eternal joy, and he walked relentlessly to see it to that end. And though he faced authorities from Rome and authorities from Jerusalem and authorities from hell itself, he continued to walk until it was brought to his completion where he declared it is finished. And yet his work continues by his spirit in us, right? Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 24 says that, hey, every single nation will hear this gospel before I come back. That is Christ saying that, listen, I will continue the work until it is complete. Let's look at verse 10. As we close, the, cha the chosen Savior in whose reign we can rejoice confidently. And so this Savior, he reigns with gentleness. This Savior, he reigns relentlessly. In other words, he's going to accomplish his work no matter, no matter what comes against him. But also, as a result of that, we see verse 10 through 12. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, therefore. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and it, uh, desert and city and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. See, if God reigns with gentleness and if God reigns relentlessly and if God or if Christ reigns with gentleness and Christ reigns relentlessly and if Christ reigns as the one that God the Father has chosen throughout all of time ages and ages 
ago, then that brings or that should bring praise to you and me. Amen? As people that have been rescued by him, that should bring a new song. That should bring a song of joy in the midst of from the song of sorrow. Amen? You know, you have, so, you have sad songs for sad times. Are you tracking with that? You have sad songs for sad times. But the Isaiah, but Isaiah the prophet says, sing a new song, one of joy. Why, why, is there, why is it a song of joy now? Because the situation has been reversed. Because the one that we've waited on has arrived. Are you tracking with me? And so, yeah, I get it. I get it. I'll be the first to say it. It doesn't always feel that way. I get it. Life is hard. Like I said, we're living in the already not yet. And so even though Christ has come and that he's, and that the work has been accomplished, we still live in the reality of a world that is broken. So it doesn't always feel that way. That's what the waiting is for. Because you are now to wait as he moves from the first arrival to the second. As, he, as, as, he, as, 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 this, as this story moves from him being seen on earth the first time to him being seen on earth either with your eyes or as he cracks through the heavens. You can sing the song with joy because you know how the story ends. Are you tracking? You can sing a new song in the midst of hurt, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sorrow, because you know how the story ends. Paul says that we do not lose heart in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the question is, why don't you lose heart, Paul? You've experienced all sort of hardships. You've experienced poverty. You've experienced beatings. You've experienced imprisonment. Why is it that you don't lose heart, Paul? He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is re being renewed day by day. And this, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says it's because Jesus has arrived. And though this life can be hard, he has altered the course of our eternity. So that no matter what we experience here, when it's all said and done, we will experience a joy uncontainable. And so that's what you patiently wait on. Amen? Amen? And that's what you joyfully wait on. Is that joy inexpressible that is yours and that is mine as a result of his arrival.